Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Michael Link, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Western Ontario and a former UN Human Rights Special Rapporteur who discusses Israel's bloody war in Gaza as the Palestinian death toll now exceeds 25,000. Maxwell Downing, an organizer with the direct action group Climate Defiance, who explains why his group targeted retiring West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin as a climate supervillain. And Tishan Werasoria of the group Stand Up America, who talks about what's at stake in a Supreme Court case that could decimate federal agencies' ability to enforce pollution, climate, and public health regulations. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Nine years ago, crowds in Havana, Cuba, cheered as then-U.S. President Barack Obama and Cuban President Raul Castro agreed to normalize U.S.-Cuban relations after 55 years of America's economic blockade. But today, as tough sanctions reimposed by the Trump administration continue under Joe Biden, Cuba's economy is spiraling downward and Cubans are migrating to the U.S. in large numbers. The shelves at Cuba's state-run stores are nearly empty and the streets of tourist-friendly Old Havana are quiet. Yet Cubans who receive remittances from family members abroad are shielded from the full force of the economic crisis creating new levels of economic inequality. In 2022, over 440,000 Cubans emigrated, many of whom are the island's best-educated professionals. The Nation magazine calls on President Biden to take four simple steps to help ease the crisis, take Cuba off the State Department's terrorism list, encourage international organizations to increase their assistance, collaborate with European Union allies to offer direct assistance in the form of food and medical aid, and finalize a modest package of supports for the Cuban private sector announced months ago, but since delayed. These steps, the nation says, will not end Cuba's humanitarian crisis, but would help the Cuban people. The New York Police Department is spending over $390 million to encrypt police radio communication, provoking a backlash from journalists and civil liberties activists. Reporters and citizens alike have been able to listen to police communications since the 1930s. Tuning into police radio has aided journalists in exposing incidents of police violence, such as the 2014 killing of Eric Garner and the officer shooting deaths of Sean Bell in 2006 and Amadou Diallo in 1999. In 2020, community activists listened to police communications during George Floyd racial justice protests to determine how to avoid dangerous confrontations with the NYPD. In the aftermath of the protests where police used aggressive tactics to pen in activists, the NYPD paid out millions of dollars in settlements for violating protesters' rights. Since July, 10 New York police precincts have encrypted communications and gone dark 
with the entire department to be encrypted by the end of 2024. The Guardian reports that encryption is already underway in several U.S. cities, including Chicago and Denver. The NYPD says the move is needed to prevent criminals from gaining access to critical communications. However, press freedom advocates argue that encrypting police radios will prevent journalists from reporting on officer misconduct, ultimately allowing police to decide what should be considered news. More than 60 years after Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta founded the United Farm Workers Union, agricultural workers, especially migrants in the U.S., face dangerous working conditions and wage theft due to lax enforcement of labor regulations. In August, the Economic Policy Institute reported that agricultural investigations by the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division have declined by more than 60 percent since 2000 and continue to plummet under the Biden administration. Unscrupulous farm labor contractors account for the highest share of wage and hour violations. Since the EPI report, the Labor Department has proposed new rules that would prevent employers with a history of workplace violations from receiving new temporary workers under the H-2A visa program and prohibit employers from retaliating against workers who file complaints or testify in labor proceedings. Barnraiser Media reports that the proposed regulations would also protect farm workers who form, join, or aid a labor organization and afford them the right to picket or participate in secondary boycotts. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. It's been nearly four months since Israel launched its military assault on Gaza following the Hamas October 7th terrorist attack on Israel that killed 1,200 Israelis and captured 240 hostages. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres described the scale of the Israeli military operation's destruction and killing of civilians as utterly unacceptable, as Gaza's health ministry reported that the death toll of Palestinians in the territory has passed 25,000, with most of those killed women and children. Despite the deaths of tens of thousands of Gaza's civilian residents, Israel has failed to capture or kill Hamas's senior leadership or its capacity to fight, and in defiance of growing worldwide calls for a humanitarian ceasefire, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the war in Gaza will go on for many more months and reiterated his long-standing opposition to the establishment of an independent Palestinian state as a key element in achieving peace in the 75-year-long Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Your reporter spoke with Michael Link, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Western Ontario in Canada and former UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories from 2016 to 2022. Here he examines the ongoing mass death and suffering of Palestinian civilians in Gaza and the status of South Africa's case before the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza. 
war crimes committed by one side does not justify war crimes being committed by another side, no matter how atrocious uh, they are or how much your blood winds up boiling uh, because of what's happened to you. And it's, I think, fairly easy to say for most international human rights and humanitarian lawyers that's what's gone on for the last three and a half months in Gaza. Uh, there have been multiple war crimes uh, likely committed by Israel with such an appallingly high death toll, with uh, starvation being used as a, as a tool of war. On the 9th of October, I believe it was, the defense minister said that Gaza, all food, all water, all power, all fuel was going to be blocked and indeed, that's what happened for, for weeks and weeks. There was no food or water getting into Gaza. And again, that would amount to a war crime using starvation or the denials of the necessities of life uh, for a civilian population in a conflict zone. And we've had statements now since the beginning or middle of November by every leading UN agency director up to and including the UN Secretary General, demanding and begging for a, uh, an immediate humanitarian ceasefire because of the uh, appalling conditions that exist for the 2 million-plus civilians in, uh, in Gaza. Hospitals are almost entirely non-functional. There's only several, as of the last couple of days, that were even partially operated, and I see where uh, the Israeli army uh, entered into one of the last major hospitals with, that was partially operating in southern Gaza today. So with all of these appalling deaths and particularly injuries uh, that are occurring, there's virtually no health uh, services able to, be, uh, to, to treat them. They have uh, run short of um, medical supplies, amputations without anesthesia, very little food. There were before October 7th. 500 trucks a day carrying humanitarian aid into Gaza. Uh, the most we've had, I believe, since then is about an average of 100 to 110 trucks entering in over the last month and a half, which barely meets the humanitarian demand uh, for food, water, clothing, shelter, a lack of sanitation. All of this, and, and what uh, many military experts have said, is the most intensive bombing campaign in any war in the 21st century, and we may have to go all the way back to Vietnam or even to the Second World War to find a bombing campaign as intensive and as killing so many civilians in such a short period of time. The United States, as, as you just said, uh, the United Kingdom and Germany continue to support Israel's air and ground offensive in Gaza despite uh, worldwide calls to end this war and stop the killing of so many civilians. It seems that there may come a point where President Biden and these other world leaders may attempt to intervene. But at the same time, you have Israeli officials, most importantly, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who basically have stated that any ceasefire would be, in essence, surrender to Hamas, meaning he's not likely to end this war anytime soon. I can't imagine the war continuing on uh, for another 12 months. I can't imagine it continuing on for another more than a month or so. My hope, both as a former special rapporteur, but also as an international human rights lawyer, is that if the International Court of Justice, uh, which heard arguments 10 days ago from South Africa and from Israel on South Africa's application for provisional measures based on the 1948 Genocide Convention, if uh, South Africa is successful in getting some or all of its requested provisional measures accepted by the court, that that may be the means by which the United States tries to extricate itself and therefore Israel 
from continuing to pursue this war and then to figure out uh, what goes on after that politically uh, and uh, with respect to the humanitarian nightmare that's that's in Gaza. So that's the hope I and many would have now because uh, we've seen uh, resolutions demanding a ceasefire from the UN General Assembly, non-binding, at the end of uh, November, uh, with 151 nations uh, voting in favour of it, yet that did not sway the United States from continuing to veto resolutions calling for a ceasefire at the Security Council, which is the only, I guess, political body of the United Nations that can demand obedience uh, to its resolutions if there's the political will. We've not seen that yet. We've seen the United States continuing to defend Israel diplomatically at the UN and continuing to supply it militarily and financially in order to be able to continue to pursue this war, all the while issuing these cautions uh, or mild criticisms uh, of Israel, which have not uh, really made much difference uh, in the death toll or the humanitarian crisis uh, in, uh, in Gaza. That was Michael Link. Associate Professor of Law at the University of Western Ontario in Canada and former UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories from 2016 to 2022. Find more news and commentary on Israel's war in Gaza by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Climate Defiance is a youth led organization that burst on the political scene last April when they organized a protest to block the entrances to the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner in Washington, D.C. The dinner went on as planned, but the action introduced a climate group that was willing to take aggressive, loud, and nonviolent direct action, focusing mostly on those in power in federal and state government. On January 12th, about 50 young people and elders converged on two sites in New Hampshire where Joe Manchin, the conservative Democratic senator from West Virginia, was speaking about the need for Americans to come together in spite of party affiliation. Manchin, who is retiring from the Senate this year, has flirted with the idea of a third-party run for president with the secretive corporately funded group No Labels. Outside one venue and inside the other, the climate activists called out Manchin for his strong support of fossil fuels even as he himself profits from owning a coal operation. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus, who was at the action, spoke with Maxwell Downing, a recent college graduate who's one of the full-time organizers with Climate Defiance. Here he talks about why the group targeted Manchin as a climate supervillain and their strategy of disruption during the 2024 presidential election campaign. I mean, Joe Manchin, he's really your poster child of a climate supervillain, right? He's the king of the Mountain Valley pipeline. He has basically slaughtered, uh, mutilated any piece of like vital green uh, legislation that was supposed to go into the 2022 spending bill. He has consistently used his office and his power to enrich himself. People may not know this, but Joe Manchin, he owns a family-run scrap coal business in West Virginia. Uh, where he rakes in about $500,000 a year uh, in profits. He's made millions from this business throughout his uh, Senate career. 
when you look at West Virginia itself, he's not helping West Virginians by pushing back on all of this green legislation. It doesn't help that he is the chair of the Senate Energy Committee. In our 50-50 split Senate, we have a situation specifically with climate legislation where all roads lead to Joe. He can basically veto any piece of legislation he wants because of his voting power and his position on the um, Energy Committee. Do you think he can remain influential after he leaves office? And does climate defiance care if he runs for president as an independent, which he's saying he, you know, he's being coy about whether he would, you know, make a run? It sounds not that likely, but, you know, it could happen. What does climate defiance think about that? I mean, I think at the end of the day, Joe Manchin is a climate supervillain, right? We don't want that man anywhere near public office, right? We've been pushing really hard on the Biden administration, but at the end of the day, one Joe is clearly much worse than the other Joe. Um, You know, that being said, climate defiance is going to consistently push back on anybody who is furthering fossil fuels into the 21st century because we have to listen to the science. You know, scientists are ringing the alarm bell saying that we have to cut down our emissions drastically. So when you have somebody like Joe Manchin trying to proclaim himself as a centrist and a moderate, we're going to call BS and say that selling our futures for your comfort and to maintain the status quo is not a moderate position. It's an extremist position and it's a very dangerous position. So we will continue to push back on him. So you were saying one Joe was worse than the other. So I'm curious, it's looking more and more like we're going to have a rematch from 2020, which is just so horrifying between Trump and Biden. And I know that climate defiance has been targeting not solely, but I would say probably largely Democrats, right, in office who were either appointed or elected. Does climate defiance as as an organization or just individual people have an opinion about if it's Trump versus Biden, what you all would do? It's a really sticky question. I don't necessarily see us endorsing Biden in the 2024 election if it's against Trump. I also don't necessarily see us encouraging people not to vote for Biden in the 2024 election. That being said, uh, that's not a promise. That's not a guarantee. It's uh, an internal discussion that I haven't been quietly in the fold yet with. And to be honest, I don't think it's an internal discussion that we have really had yet. Uh, We've been mostly focused with just keeping the pressure on the Biden administration. And, you know, come 2024, if there is a shift in parties and we do see a Trump presidency or a presidency with Nikki Haley, we are going to have to shift focus. You are going to start seeing a lot more actions with Republicans, with members of the Republican cabinet. Even this week, we did a trip up to New Hampshire, uh, a second one, uh, where we were trying to get uh, Nikki Haley and uh, confront her on her campaign tour. Uh, unfortunately, it did not work out because of the snowstorm added about six hours to our journey. So we did not make the event in time. And, you know, not all of these events are wins. But that being said, uh, just because the Republicans and we are mostly focused on Democrats right now doesn't make them safe from a disruption. I wasn't an activist before I joined Climate Defiance, and now I kind of do it for a living. Um, but I think one of the best things about it is that it really pops this pink bubble that these politicians live in, right? Um, This pink bubble where there is no accountability, they can say one thing and do another. You know, when climate defiance shows up to an event that's being hosted or uh, is hosting a Biden official or a Democratic congressman who has voted against green legislation, we go up and we make our voices heard and we say, hey, you have to listen to us. The majority of Americans want stronger legislation surrounding climate change than what you guys are doing. Majority, vast majority of scientists are saying we need it to survive as a species, and you have to listen to us. We're not going to sit here passively as you sell our futures. 
Um, and I think that's one of the most beautiful things about direct action is that it's inherently democratic in that it makes our voices heard, even when the system is set up and designed to mute that. That was Maxwell Downing, an organizer with a direct action group, Climate Defiance. Learn more about the group and their 2024 election climate actions by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. A group of commercial fishing companies, backed by lawyers paid by the Koch network of right-wing lobbyists, have brought two cases before the U.S. Supreme Court that could decimate federal regulations addressing workplace safety, clean water, breathable air, the climate crisis, safe food, and much more. The two cases narrowly challenged a 2020 federal regulation requiring owners of fishing boats in the Atlantic herring fishery to pay for monitors that collect data and oversee operations. However, central to the cases, Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo and Relentless Incorporated versus Department of Commerce, is the so-called Chevron Doctrine that was established in a 1984 Supreme Court ruling that instructed judges to defer to federal regulatory agencies' reasonable interpretation of a law if Congress had not specifically addressed the issue. As they responded to oral arguments on January 17th, the Supreme Court's extremist conservative majority appeared likely to overturn the 40-year-old Chevron Doctrine. If the High Court overturns Chevron, it will gut federal agencies' ability to implement congressionally passed regulations and take policy decisions away from scientists and experts, placing them in the hands of unelected judges who have no expertise on these issues. Your reporter spoke with Tishan Werasoria, Senior Associate of Policy and Political Affairs with the group Stand Up America, who talks about what's at stake in this critically important Supreme Court case. So essentially what this comes down to is ripping 40 years of precedent and power away from experts and scientists at agencies and giving it to unelected, inexpert judges and courts. So when Congress passes vague or ambiguous laws, for the last 40 years, judges and courts yielded to experts and scientists at agencies on how best to implement that law. And let me boil it down and provide you an example. Talking about EPA water standards, right? EPA has the ability to ensure that the water we drink is free from pollutants and toxic chemicals. And on its face, that feels like a common sense thing. Having experts and scientists from the Environmental Protection Agency who have spent decades in their field writing safety standards to ensure toxic chemicals don't enter our water. However, if conservative justices get their way in both these cases and they overturn the Chevron Doctrine, they will take this power away from scientists and experts and give it to themselves. So in essence, 800-plus unelected inexpert judges from around the country We'll get to decide intricate policy issues rather than the experts at our agencies. And on its face, that is what both cases mean. That is, is what is at stake with both these cases. When this case 
came before the uh, court's justices. Tell us a bit about the response of the individual justices and the growing concern that the Supreme Court's conservative majority is is poised to overturn the Chevron doctrine. And that is something that for years we have always been concerned about. Justice Gorsuch, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, they have all indicated that they want to overturn this doctrine. They have all indicated in the previous decisions that they are open to overturning this doctrine. And our suspicions were confirmed when Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, they also, during all arguments, echoed the same sentiments that Justice Gorsuch and the others mentioned, that this doctrine should be overturned and only causes more harm to an American people, where all of us on the um, other side, we discuss and we talk about the safety standards and the decades worth of precedent that the experts and scientists have been working on uh, to provide safety standards in the healthcare, in labor standards, worker protection, civil rights. All of this work, all the conservative justices have indicated that they do want to overturn this. Tishan, what would the future look like if, as expected, the court's extremist conservative majority overturns the Chevron doctrine, as well as 40 years of precedent here? I think it will be chaos and uncertainty. So right now, basically what Chevron doctrine means is that all the judges, 800-plus judges from across the country, they yield when laws are ambiguous or laws are vague, which are passed by Congress. They are supposed to yield to the experts at these agencies. If this is overturned, that means any judge in the federal circuit will basically get to decide policy issues. So no longer is it scientists who spent years working on these policy issues. It can be random judges in Texas, random judges in South Dakota that suddenly get to decide what drug is safe for everyday Americans across the country to use. What is the limit for toxins in our drinking water that is safe to use? So now all of a sudden, it's no longer experts, no longer scientists. Judges from across the country will get to decide what that means. And as you mentioned before, this is not just environmental. This also goes to worker protections, labor standards, health care. So much is at stake and so much can be undone. Just the stability of our country can be done by overturning this doctrine. And one thing that I expect to see is that if it is overturned, we'll see far more lawsuits from organizations like the Federal Society and other conservative-leaning organizations filing just to create more havoc and to strip away safety standards that oil companies, coal companies want to use. So I think if this is overturned, there will be a lot more chaos, a lot more uncertainty for what everyday Americans will have to live with. That was Tishan Werasoria, Senior Associate of Policy and Political Affairs with the group Stand Up America. Learn more about what's at stake in the Supreme Court case that could overturn the Chevron Doctrine by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The 
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WFMP in Louisville, Kentucky, KYRS in Spokane, Washington, Progressive Voices Network nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.